Welcome to the Exploring Leadership Podcast, where we interview experienced HR leaders and executives to define what the most effective leaders are made of and how to help underperforming leaders transform into the best they can be. Brought to you by Lumen Leadership. Now, here's your host, Spencer Taylor. You're about to hear a great conversation about building a culture of winning. It's kind of the the, uh, informal title that I've chosen from the conversation I just had with Pete Gibson, who is currently serving as the Chief Technology Chief Information Officer at Friendlies and Johnny Rockets. Uh, An amazing career. We get to hear a bit of uh, some of the highlights of Pete's career, uh, going all the way back to his time as a commander in the U.S. Navy back in the mid-80s and many successes uh, specializing in turnaround situations in lots of different companies, uh, big and small, uh, in the years that have transpired since. I'm delighted to have just visited with Pete. Really excited for you to hear our conversation. We'll jump right into it. But uh, I guess just officially, welcome to Pete Gibson as a special guest today on on our episode, uh, who's currently serving as the Chief Technology Officer, Chief Information Officer at Friendlies and Johnny Rockets. Welcome, Pete. Nice to be here. So grateful you would take the time, truly, and excited to learn from you today. Um, we just met through LinkedIn. We had a, a conversation a couple of weeks ago to kind of brainstorm some ideas of what we would talk about today. Um, really excited to get to some of those bullet points that we touched on. Uh, but most important, let's hear about you first. Love to just, uh, again, we, we share in common, though not during the same years, uh, military service. You were in the military fairly early in your career back in, kind of, I think it was the mid 80s. You served in the, in the Navy. Yeah. I actually came out of a liberal arts school in North Carolina and uh, then did a couple of years of not-for-profit and joined the Navy. And for the first time in my life, I was really challenged and um, excelled in the Navy. And then through a Navy career, I ended up, uh, instead of in operations, I kind of was in weapon system development. I was responsible for developing the the Tomahawk cruise missile and the UAV program at at a place in Virginia. And uh, really enjoyed the experience. It was one of those experiences that I learned a whole lot. Uh, high reliability computing, software development, technology management, how to run an organization. And that set me up to uh, run the IBM.com. Then I became CIO at uh, Alamo National Car Rental, CTO at Wyndham. CIO at Bridge Street. I ran an IT outsourcing company in Shanghai. We developed Walmart.com, Red Prairie, Agilisys, so forth, and then came back and did some consulting. And the next thing you know, I'm at Johnny Rockets and Friendly's turning them around. So, well, that's awesome. And, and it seems like I, as I was looking at more of your uh, the details behind your different positions you've held. Um, and even a, a little bit of our earlier conversation, you, you want to or you tend to specialize in kind of this these turnaround type scenarios of going into an organization that may have some unique challenges and helping them really solve those. And then, and then kind of moving on to the next big project. Is that is that true or tell me what's inaccurate? about No, that? that's, no that's, that's true. I found kind of I kind of fell into that. Um, and it's really so sort of that grounding I got back in the government, which was a true. CMM organization, capability maturity model. Yes, you learn the, the the technical side of the job. You learn the strategic side of an organization, but then you learn the operations piece of it. And the operations piece is processes, procedures, and so forth. And so how do you go from not really being able to develop something 
to put these process procedures into place to where you have high reliability code and systems and, uh, and services going out the door. And I find that a lot of people don't understand how to go do that really well, or they don't have the toolbox. And so what that enables me to go do is go into organizations to where they're not, they don't have those type things. You can go in and say, well, here's the technical solutions here. I can go to the strategic side of it, but this is how do we get from less than efficient to being really efficient or stated another way, we go from being a cost center into a strategic imperative for the organization because we're putting stuff out the door. And so I find that to be a really good sellable solution um, as I go into positions. Really interesting. So you used a phrase a minute ago, capability maturity model. Uh, can we dig into that a bit? Like, sure. what is that really about? And maybe even starting to yeah. uh, find that intersection with leadership as yeah, well. Yeah, back when I, um, back when the government was, and, you know, you got to look at technology over time. Technology, some of the biggest technology initiatives back in the 60s and 70s were in the government. And then in the 80s, they were having these big complex systems and the government was having trouble getting the systems out the door. And so they went up to Carnegie Mellon or partnered with Carnegie Mellon, and I'm not really sure, and they developed something called Capability Maturity Model. It is now Capability Maturity Model Integrated, and you'll see a lot of the large uh, software development shops work on these type processes and define their process and say what they are and get them baked in and so forth. And so I picked that up in the government when I was running the, uh, the cruise missile program, and it has served me really well to this day, because if you define your processes, everyone in the organization knows their processes on how to go do it, and then you start putting in quality into your process, you start becoming a predictable and reliable organization to go to get products out the door. So at Wyndham, when I went in there, they brought me in because they tried to launch a set of branded websites and they failed miserably. And then when they brought me in, I kind of say, well, this place is really a mess. And then I started blocking and tackling the first three to four months. And that gives me a little bit of a room to start developing a process. It took us three months to develop the process. And then we started educating everybody. And then we start breaking the molds inside the organization. And then all of a sudden, it kind of goes out on time. And then it goes two to three of them start going out on time. And then a, and a year later, I got people coming to me and say, we got too many products going out the door at the same time. And you come, become very predictable and reliable. That also means you're on budget and you're on time, which equates to high customer satisfaction. And the CFO is out of your knickers and so forth. Because when you say this is what it's going to cost and your team is reliable to go do it all, you're pretty dang gone close. Boy, it seems like there's really some core wisdom here. And and uh, I wonder, you've applied this in several instances in uh, global organizations. I know you, you've worked with some that are a little bit smaller than that, but maybe we can scale it down even further. And let's say we have kind of a middle market, 500 to 1,000 employees, and they're struggling with, with uh, consistency and delivery. They know there's inefficiencies. Like, can you kind of walk us through what what's the what's the process? If you land on their... On their site, what, what are you going to do with them to help them get to where you know they can it's go? It's the exact same thing. Now, the the number of processes and the weight of the process and the tools you have in the process may not be there, but it's really kind of the same. Is how do you know that you what you're going to develop? So we we'll call that definition and requirements. 
How is it designed to go do it? And then you go into development and then you go into qualification and release. Now, a lot of people call that a traditional waterfall approach. But if you do whatever your process is in the organization, if it is defined, and then if you go implement it to everybody, not just one group and not in the CIO's mind, but everyone is trained on it, you will have a lot of success. Now, let's look at it on the infrastructure side. There, we would call it you know, one of the best ones that I, I'm a big advocate of is courses ITIL, right? How does your help desk operate? How does your change management process operate? When you get into these places, a lot of them will just kind of release changes and this and the other. Slow it down, four or five steps in the change management process. It is enforceable, it has rigor, and then at the end of it, you're measuring how, what was your success? Did it go on time? Was it successful? Were you communicating with the customers? And if you go do that, you will have a higher reliability of being successful. And that is in the development side, in the infrastructure side, in the, in the project management, program management side. Of course, it's PMP, but there is ESRB. There's a whole bunch of these other processes that you can put in place to make sure that you are successful. Now, process doesn't have to be heavy. Yeah, and the larger organizations kind of got to be heavy. But in the smaller organizations, it's not a 20-step process. It just might be a two or three, four, five-step process. And it goes in and you will see significant improvement in what you go do. And it can be agile also. I mean, I go into a lot of agile organizations. They read a book on agile. They say, this is our development methodology. You go in, you look at the agile board, and it's funny. It is, you know, to be done, in development, blocked, and completed. And which, and which column is always full? It's blocked. And you start asking yourself, where was the system engineering? Where was the architecture? Where was all this done up front just to figure it out? And then you get into your sprints. Why, Mr. CIO, do you have so many blocks here? And then they, they also they used to, you know, I don't know, this, that, and the other. And I know you didn't figure it out up front is what it is. And so because they're blocked, you're probably going to miss your release date. You're probably going to be over budget because you're paying people and so forth. So those are some of the, the common challenges that you've seen. I'm curious, building on those, buy-in, whether that's in a technology context or you're just in a broader leadership context, getting buy-in can often be a challenge. How have you dealt with situations where maybe buy-in wasn't immediate? It took a little bit of kind of persuasion or whatever you might phrase it to get people to really get on board. Um, yeah, there's a little, uh, co- I won't say coercion, that kind of sounds bad, but there is a little bit of it. And you say, hey, you know, one is you kind of appeal to the emotion, right? I said, they were going to go do this. Then they kind of go, well, you know, this, that, and that. I said, well, hey, do you want to live in chaos? Everyone running around and things aren't working? Or do you want to get into a methodology? And they'll kind of go, okay, we want to get into a methodology. What they're really saying is, whatever you say, boss, but I won't believe it till I see it, Okay. And then the first one is once it's defined and you train everybody, then you kind of say, let's go try this. And they go, OK. And then you start seeing the rice bowl start breaking down. Literally, these are real conversations that people are coming to me. Had a training session at one place, laid it all out. And, you know, they all have give them all little books. Here's the process. And the, the development guys did a good job. The, the process development guys did a good job of that. And one person comes to me and says, this is too restrictive. You know, this person is used to freewheeling all over. This is too, can't go do my job. 
And I said, well, you know, it's we can malleate this thing, a waiver and deviation of the process and so forth. Okay. I said, just humor me. Let's go try it. Literally five minutes later, I had another person come to me and that person says, it doesn't tell me how to do my job. And I said, well, you know, no process advocates you from thinking. You still got to think. It's just a framework to go do this. But humor me. Let's go try it. And then the other part of it, it was a project team. One of the illities we were trying to solve in this was it wasn't system development, but I had infrastructure guys when I first got there were complaining. Equipment just shows up in the data center and we have no idea what it is. I'd go to the help desk guys. They would say, yeah, we know when something's been released because our customers start calling us about this stuff and we had no idea of being released. So they're all in the development process of this thing. Yeah, they got the software, got the requirements, you got the software guys doing the software piece of it. But you have the infrastructure guy saying, well, this, if this is what it is, this is what we need from a network and infrastructure and so forth. So they're doing that up front and developing their piece of it. Help desk guys are in that also doing the same thing. Is run by the project management guys in this, and they got the cost basis of this thing. But then we also get the customer in there too. The customer is part of the project team. And there are certain things that the customer must do on time to keep the project moving on time, but they're in on all the decision-making along the way. And then by the time it comes to develop, test, so forth, and it goes to a go, no go. Then everyone has a vote. Are we ready to go? And then it goes. And you're going to see the reliability is high. Help desk has already been trained. Infrastructure is ready to go. You have a higher reliability of this thing being successful. I want to peel back the onion one more layer on one particular phrase that you used. You talked about kind of this conversation of basically you saying to them, humor me, let's go try it. I know that people won't go try it unless they see you as credible. So clearly they trusted you, saw you as a credible advocate, as resistant as they may have been at, at some level. How did you build that with people? How did you get to that point? No, it's not the first thing you do. So we were... You know, before it was it was blocking and tackling. I was out uh, at the data center during Christmas and the systems were just falling over, you know, th have this issue or this bug or whatever. And then the admins were all working through the night trying to get it fixed. And you just kind of go, this is no way to do business. This is not how we want to be doing this. OK, and then they get that. And then all of a sudden you start, you know, going around for like, who did the release of this thing? Well, and then I kind of get the, you know, the finger pointing. And it says, hey, this thing had some issues. Who's responsible for it? And they go, well, I got the developers. And then we got a software maintenance group. And you start scratching your head and you go, the developers have all the knowledge because they developed it. But then the we pitch it over the fence to the operators and they got to solve all of the LEDs. Where's the accountability into your process? And again, I haven't developed this thing. I'm just saying, where's the accountability? Who is the accountable person? And of course, I always say, I'm the, I am the accountable person. I run the organization. But then I'll, if there are issues, I'm on the call at night, two o'clock in the morning or whatever it is. But then I start making changes within the first month or so and say, you know, this operate, this, you know, software maintenance group. No, no, no. We're stopping that. Maintenance guys, you go back to your systems. Systems guys, you develop it. You're responsible. If there's an issue. You're on the call. And then all of a sudden they go, oh, this guy's serious about code. He's going to hold me accountable for quality code. And I'm, if that's not right, I'm going to be on the call. And I say, yep, so are the infrastructure guys, myself, the PMs that need to be on the phone. We're going to find this problem. We're going to get it fixed, get the systems back up and online. 
and you start seeing this stuff and then you start saying we've improved and then at that point it's we're going to go do this and it's kind of like yeah humor me the other thing was they were putting stuff into production that really really wasn't tested and you kind of go well i got news for you nothing's going in the systems unless it's been tested i mean i really got there they said you know, where's our test program? And I'm not a big test fan. And we can talk about that some other time. But I said, you know, how do we make sure that it's right before going in? And the QA guy brought me a six inch binder and says, here it is. I said, are we really doing that? He kind of goes, mm, yeah, not really. Yeah, okay. And so I said, well, guess what? We're going to start doing it. And so one meeting, they want to put this thing in and other people were telling me it's not ready. It's not ready. The infrastructure guys were saying, oh, we're scared. This thing could bend over. And I kind of said, has it been tested? They go, no, not really. That ain't going in. And it was like someone turned the light on in a room full of cockroaches. They went running around saying, we got to get everything tested. And that did okay. I mean, you can never test quality into code or into a system. You got to build it in. And I'm a big believer in, in software quality assurance versus test, different issue. But once you start saying you hold the ground, you start building credibility. You start building credibility and then they'll go do this. And then all of a sudden you have a few wins and then you can get a few more wins. And then that, and change is slow when you go into an organization, but you get one win, two wins, three wins. And all of a sudden your changes start coming faster. Well, and so much of the last few minutes has been about accountability. You know, again, you, you understanding what has been done in the past before you arrived on scene, so to speak, when it comes to accountability uh, and then being consistent with holding different stakeholders accountable as you move forward. Accountability is one of those things that I think has really been shifting over the last several years, just with the younger generation coming in, using the old tactic of holding people accountable isn't necessarily working, at least in the same way as, as with younger generation. Do you have any thoughts around that? Like how, how do you, how have you adapted if at all when it comes to accountability? Yeah, I, I almost delegate a hundred percent. And I hold people accountable. And it's not so much you out go do. There is a conversation. And I would say, Spence, you know, when do we think this is, you know, let's say I'm not don't have a lot of process and procedures in place and we don't have any things really working yet. And I'll just work with you. And I'll say, Spence, when do you think we can get it out the door? And he says, oh, I think we can do it in six weeks. And I go, OK, that's good. Let's give ourselves eight weeks. Can you make eight weeks? And he goes, well, yeah, I can go do that. I said, I got news for you. You tell me, yes, I believe you. We're going to get it out the door and let me know what you need to get it out the door. Okay. And so then when it starts coming time, because there's no, there's no project management yet. There's none of this stuff. There's still uh, people running around trying to do things. Then you go, okay, uh, I can go do that. Hey, you gave, I said I can do it this date. You gave me some extra time to go do it. Go do it. And then it comes down to, Every week you have a meeting with me, one-on-one -on -one or whatever. How are we doing on the project? What do you need? Are we on track? And then, you, you, so at that point, I am ingraining you to be accountable for what you committed to. I didn't put into, I didn't, you know, hang you or anything of that nature. I just said, this is what you said you could go do. And then I started working you into being accountable. And sometimes people don't like it. Uh, but you'll find if you treat people, I mean, I'm not out to get the people and hold them accountable or out to all be successful as an IT organization. And they understand that. And they soon realize that through these conversations, I have their back. What do you need? How can we go do this? I can get you resources. I can go do whatever until we get all our processes in place and so forth. 
And it starts building credibility with me and, and we start moving this thing forward. And sometimes things do happen and I'm pushed back on the customers. This is the issue. This is that CFO, more money until we get this thing gelled and going in the right direction, until we get our focus on the right direction. But then once you do, it's a lot of fun. It is nothing. It is a hoot for me to come back to you and say, you know, that went out really well and the customers really liked it. And you go, really? Yeah. And they go, so let's do it again. And you go, yeah. And you start building this culture of winning and having people wanting to come to work and feeling valued in what they do. And then you start building this winning philosophy of and approach and you get some open collaboration and people aren't afraid to tell you bad news because that's what you're here for. And um, that's how you normally start out in an organization that needs to be turned around. Well, that's fantastic. I love hearing about it. And especially that part of just uh, starting to build that momentum. And again, you, you're building a culture of winning. I'm sure that we can yeah, wins come we small. dive more into yeah, that. Wins come small. Yeah. You know, what is a win? A win to a person on the help desk is, a satisfied customer. You put in a customer satisfaction survey at the end of every help desk call and you do the analysis on it and you go from, let's just say, 95% satis- completely happy, satisfied to 96. That's a huge win. Let me put it that. That's that you only got space for five more percent. You just went up 20% as a, on that space. That's a huge win. And that comes to people being on the call. They can take the call. They can do the call. We're going to take the call, really work it and make that customer happy. And then that's what you reward in the organization. You know, people like to be rewarded. They like to hear their names. They like to be told good things. You know, I'm not saying coddle them. I'm not saying that. Don't take that at all is when they do something, reward them for that. If things aren't going right, well, that's what you have in the private conversations. And even then you don't kill the individual. You kind of say, how do we get in this thing and how do we get out of it? Well, so I'm, and I'm wondering too, and this is somewhat of a selfish question, uh, just because we, we share military experience in common. When you go back to your days as Commander Gibson, uh, back in the Navy, and then you made the transition into corporate, uh, number one, was it, was it a challenge to make that transition and, and I guess, uh, applying the way things like accountability and structure and process worked in the military, in the Navy? Um, and then, uh, two, did you find yourself, adapting and leveraging that as a key asset? Or again, were, were there some key changes that had to happen in, in your approach in the private sector? You know, most people think the, the military is all yelling and screaming and giving an order and people go running around. Well, it's not quite like that. You know that, right? Yeah, there are a lot of bright people in the military. You know, they will do their job, but your job is to get them to want to go do the job. And in there, and one thing the military does is it gives you a really good grounding in leadership. And leadership is really difficult to learn. Let me tell you. It, I mean, you go to the corporate world, I'm going to send you to a leadership class. And off you go for a three or five day class. And you want to know something? You know absolutely nothing when you come back about leadership. You know, you got to get in the trenches and you got to go do it. And, and the essence of leadership is being able to get somebody to go do something that they wouldn't normally want to go do, i.e. new processes, new procedures, a new project. In the military, it's like, go take that hill, or we're going to go do this. And, oh, by the way, you might get shot at. So, but, you know, that's the essence of it. And so I was really fortunate to go learn that stuff. 
and to be accountable and to go execute and to uh, execute. I was fortunate at the end that my last position, I had 350 civil servants working with me and I was the only uniformed officer there. Then you've heard it on a lot, you know, and this is, you know, if they don't like you, be honest with you, they're going to make you tell you what you want to hear and placate you. But the civil servants kind of have a little philosophy of if I don't like you, I'm going to keep my head to the ground for two years or three years because there'll be a new officer that will come in here then. And so then you kind of look at that and you say, yeah, I don't quite understand this. I need to learn. And then you kind of say, how can we go do this better? And they start buying in. Now you transition over into the commercial sector. And, and this this honestly happened, and if you look at my bio, it happened at IBM by the manager that hired me. I go in there, fresh, first commercial job, I go in there and I started out, you, you normally go back a couple of levels when you go into your commercial job. And so I went in as a project manager. Honest to God, my boss came to me and says, we're taking a chance on you military types. And I go, okay. <laughs> yes, boss. All right. Like we all do. Three months later, she comes back to me and she says, where do we get more of you military types? And, you know, almost every job I went to for the first eight years, what was your transition like? What was your transition like? I'd say, well, I find it, you know, leave the military stuff in the military. This is a new career, but you take a toolbox full of stuff with you from maintenance, development, leadership, so forth, that finds that makes you really good. In fact, I go in often, one of our weaknesses in technology is we'll take a young person, he's a great coder, and then we'll make him a, a, a more of a senior coder. And then the next thing you do is we're going to say, you're a team leader. We have not prepared that guy to be a leader or that lady or whoever it is to be a leader. We've gone from your, you know, you do it yourself, you do it yourself. Now you got to administer and run a team. They have, don't have the skill sets. And so what happened, I actually saw this happen in a couple of places. They were putting a product at the door and this leader, they were having issues and bugs with it. So what did the leader start doing? The leader went to the keyboard with the leader knew best and, and back in their comfort zone and started looking at the code and looking for bugs. I literally said, come on, get out of there. You're not doing that. You go down, you have 15 people working for you. Let's walk the hallway and you tell them how important it is to find that. And you say, we're going to have a bug squishing contest. And he who finds the most bugs, we're going to give a gift certificate to. You start leading. And they got through a little bit better. And it was a you know, learning experience for her and so forth. But we often, I often find it's not that person's fault. They are actually working really hard. They're really bright intelligent. No one ever told them as they were coming up through the technology ranks how to be a good leader. Hold your team, not accountable, but work with them. Your job is to lead. Their job is to produce. And that's a very, you know, draconian approach to it. But that's kind of how it is. You rise above this. Keep your head looking around at what's going on in the organization. You pull the reins to keep this thing going. But don't get mired down into one or two technical issues unless you really, really need to. Well, it's funny. I was just as you're as you're talking about this principle that's so powerful. I was thinking about the application of parenting. My wife and I often joke that uh, it's way easier to do it ourselves. <laughs> you know, it's easier to, you're talking about sitting down and finding the bugs 
it's easier to do the dishes myself than it is to have my eight-year-old <laughs> do the dishes. So I think, it, I guess the point is it's applicable in every part of life. It's it not is. just in a professional context. We can use this rule. But yeah, but you know, there's things that leadership that apply to that too. Never ask someone to do something that you're not willing to go do yourself, right? And <laughs> my daughter just graduated and she's out in Louisville. And uh, so it's just a, a great young lady. And what surprises me the most is, not what you tell they, you know, well, so I'll just digress here a second. It's a pretty funny story. So just like yours, mine would never keep their room clean, right? Clean up your room. Okay. We're cleaning the house. You got to go clean your room. Okay. Okay. Yeah. A few things. Oh, yeah, whatever. All right. And you go, oh, you're a teenager, right? And so we would have those type things. And so she was good with money because we kind of controlled that and so forth. But anyway, so she goes on her own. She graduates university, gets her own apartment. And next thing you know is she has a budget. And the wife and I looked at each other and said, where's that coming from? She never did that before. Oh, by the way, every weekend she is cleaning her apartment. And I go, really? Where did that come from? You know, what you'll learn is as the leader, and not, yeah, I don't want to use the word leader and parent, you know, it's kind of, you know, kind of weird. But anyway, they pick up on your habits, your habit, and you'll learn that what you do is just as powerful, if not more powerful than what you tell them to go do. And, and it's not, you know, you're not going to say one time, go do the dishes and they're going to do it. And forever and a day, they're going to be happy to do dishes. Oh, no, this is a long journey on raising a child. Well, I couldn't agree more. I, I uh, again, I'm, I'm still learning that uh, with my kids, but um, just the power of example uh, compared to the power of sermon, I guess you could say. You know, you can get up on your soapbox and preach a good sermon, so to speak, to your kids and, and tell them what to do, but it's ultimately them reflecting on what they saw you do in your context or your example. I think that's where the real power was, and that's a great principle in in the professional uh, setting as well. I mean, if they see you coming in early, I'm not saying you have to come in real early or you stay a few minutes later, they're more inclined to go do it. I'm not saying they will, but they're more inclined to go do that because you know something's got to get out and they'll, well, not, not the habits of the organization won't change because of it, but they will say, hey, you know, he's here working. I can give 10 extra minutes to get this thing done. Just do tomorrow morning, I get 10 extra minutes done. In other organizations I've seen, they don't have that. The boss is out the door or whatever it is, and the person will say, yeah, I can wait till tomorrow. And it's just a little simple 5%, 10%. And it's something that, you know, you asked at the very beginning is, you know, you cannot make people work. Yeah, they come to work. Yes, they do work, whatever. But there's a difference between having people working and having people want to work. Hmm. It's a huge difference. And that's 10 to 15%. So when I was back in the government, Bright, some of the brightest people I ever worked with. I mean, I really had some people that were national authorities on certain items. And they could have gotten more money working in the commercial sector, i.e. a defense contractor, than they could have by working as a civil servant. But the power of great projects, being treated right, a great, great culture would allow these people to go from Fredericksburg, Virginia, uh, 45 minutes over to where we were at, or they could have taken the train up into Washington, D.C. and made a lot more money. 
That is the power of what you need to go do as leaders, develop this culture, this culture of winning to where people want to be there and participate. And we, and we measure it in retention rates. If you are a good organization, good leadership, good project, you're going to start seeing your retention rate go up. And as you know, I do turnaround work. I take, I've done three chapter 11 works. One chapter 11 work, it was, I had a 96% retention rate in chapter 11. And that was a shut, we shut that business unit down. And this last one, I had 100% retention rate of it during chapter 11, and we shut the business unit down. So all the people that stayed with them, I mean, we did, we did some divestitures, and those part of the IT teams went with uh, the organization. We also did furloughs last year, and I had to let some people go along the way. But those that still had the opportunity to stay at the very end, 100% of them, they saw what was coming. They stayed at the very end. And we had open conversations with them, and real serious open conversations that, look, guys, this thing is going to get sold and we're going to shut it down. And I'll tell you when I know I can legally tell you and all the other things, but we're going to have a lot of conversations. And then so then the news comes out. And then the first conversation after that is, is yep, this thing's going to shut down. I expect you guys to get your resumes on the streets right now. I will back you up if you go get a job. If you need to go interview, I'll back you up. All right. And uh, but while you're here, we've got a certain job to go do. And I need your help and assistance to make sure that we are successful on doing it on time. And I find that those type conversations are really, while they're kind of painful, they're really healthy because people say, hey, you know, this guy understands I got a family. This guy, he's willing to help me. And also at the same time, saying, I'll be a reference for you. And I may be short manpower or work power, whatever the current term is this day and age, to go do this, but your livelihood is more important. And they kind of go, oh, that's kind of, and I'll tell you, other departments didn't go do that. <laughs> One was HR. They didn't go do that. They kind of, you know, not really sure this, that, and the other. And the ambiguity killed them. People were leaving right and left because they weren't sure as compared to open conversations. This is what's going to happen. And uh, I got your back. But I love that. I love that statement. Just the amb- ambiguity kills morale. It's kind of the idea, right? Ambiguity <laughs> kills a lot of morale. And, and you know this. It's We're going to take the hill. We're not going to take the hill. We're going to go the other way. But running around in ambiguity, not living in chaos and ambiguity is really difficult for an organization. People want to know what's going to happen. They want to know what is my piece, my role in this organization to make it successful. And people do want to be successful. It's up to you to guide them towards that. And the success is, of course, work, but it's also in life. Now, you can't go always solve all the life issues and problems, but I often find that I like to get to know my associates. You know, I like to, you know, how's the wife doing? How's this doing? Uh, what can I go do to help you out? I can't necessarily give everybody pay increases, but maybe here's a gift certificate because you and you're really close to your family. Go get a portrait done. Those little things add up. I mean, I had, um, as we all do, working from home, our policy was you are encouraged to work from home. And I had one associate that tried working from home. He found out that his relationship was a little bit stronger if he was in the office for eight hours of the day and not on top of each other all day long. And I said, that's great. I got your back. What can I go do to make it good for you? And though I said, 
you know, those type things are, are helpful. And I'll tell you another story. I had uh, another location. I had a, an up and coming young lady. She was good. She was solid and a um, little rough around the edges, but she was early 30s. She was go- she's going somewhere in her career. And um, so she had a child. Great. Congratulations. And then she had a second child. Good. Congratulations. And you know what she wanted most for her family? Flexibility. She says, can I leave at 4.30 in the afternoon? I'll get on at night and finish my work, of which she did. And the response was, because we really didn't have a formal policy in the organization, the response was yes. And you monitored not by being here eight hours a day. You monitored by projects getting done on time. So she was really a top performer. I left. New leader came in the organization, said, uh, need to be here nine to five, eight to five, office hour type stuff. You know what she did? Within 24 hours, resume was on the street. Wow. Hmm. You've got to know your people. And the other one is, and you know that is, you can play to their strengths. You know that Spence is good at this and you got this type of project coming on. Put Spence on that one. Play into his strength. So you know your people. Know their what makes them tick. What gets them excited about coming to work. So forth. Well, it's great. We've covered a lot of ground. I'm curious what your thoughts are around one little piece yes, of something we've touched on that people who are listening can take and apply immediately? How can they take something that we've uh, discussed and go apply that to be a better, stronger, more effective leader uh, this afternoon, morning, whatever time it is? For yeah, them? I often say this. Uh, normally, when you read a business book, whatever it might be, a Harvard Business School read or something like that, first of all, most people don't do it. Second one is they'll do it. The real category is pick two or three items out of that book and go try So what I encourage you to go do is to educate yourself either through this podcast or whatever and try a few things. Don't be a product of your job or your environment. Try a few things because, you know, I'm at the CIO level, but I'm getting dictated by the organization sometimes, the larger organization, HR and some of these other things. But sometimes you, you can't. And but you do control your destiny, whatever it might be, your as a sole contributor, as a group, as a larger organization, go try. And you'll find that a lot of people don't. They're just there to do what they do day in and day out. And I just have so many successes along the way of learning something and then go trying something. Uh, and the learning don't always come from me. Don't always come from a book. Spence may give me a few ideas and we're going to try it and do some learning out of it. And uh, you will be surprised. A lot of them, some of them may not work. One or two of them just may work. So don't stop learning. Go try. The interview ended fairly abruptly because right, uh, right as Pete was issuing his challenge of go and try things, and just take taking tidbits of action basically as kind of how I would uh, reframe that or represent that uh, the power in my building went out <laughs> for just a second. There was kind of a surge. I'm thankful that we got as far as we did. Very thankful to Pete for sharing his wisdom with us, but that's why it ended very abruptly instead of a proper goodbye. Um, I'm really excited about what he talked about. Again, as I kind of shared in the intro, 
really we could uh, bundle it all together as thinking about what it takes to build a culture of winning. And I just love how Pete framed it for us uh, because he talked about the fact that leadership really does not have to be complicated. It can be a fairly simple thing, even though it's challenging to lead effectively, we don't need to overcomplicate it. And that manifested itself and it continues to manifest itself in the way Pete approaches his work of, uh, I love how he talked about blocking and tackling the importance of getting out in the field, so to speak, or getting with your, with your people, especially early on, if you're in a a new leadership role, this would be particularly relevant to you, uh, getting your hands into the work, so to speak, and really understanding the challenges your people are facing more than just a a soundbite, but really seeing it, touching it, feeling it for yourself. And then that gives you that initial credibility, a foundation piece upon which you can build and then you achieve some of the smaller wins, as you spoke about as well. And ultimately, you're building momentum and showing your people that you're in it with them and you're willing to uh, to go to bat for them, to advocate for them, uh, to provide them with the flexibility to adapt roles to fit their their core skill set. These are all those those uh, power principles that uh, that I've taken away from Pete. I'd love to hear what you've taken away as well. Uh, you can connect with Pete on LinkedIn. We'll include that in the show notes. I'd love for you to leave comments, send comments over to us directly here at Warrior Leadership as well. And uh, wish you well as you continue your journey and and as you work to build a culture of winning within your organization. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Exploring Leadership Podcast. To access free videos, leadership tools, case studies, tutorials, and more about how to engage your leaders at the next level, visit LumenLeader.com. We'll see you next time.